I think that some of you, or perhaps most of you know, that my wife, Dreema, is a licensed clinical social worker. She's a counselor and a play therapist. She works at East High School, and uh, she's been a counselor for almost 20 years now. That helps me sometimes, because at the seminary, I work with both counseling students and ministry students, and I meet with them, and, and the function I have every Tuesday at the seminary is I oversee internships. And I work with students that want to become chaplains, or they want to be a, a hospital chaplain, or a prison chaplain, or they want to be pastors or ministers. And we gather together about once a month for kind of a group conversation. So I gathered with these students this past week, and as we were gathered together and talking, we got on the conversation point of how do you deal with annoying people? As a client or as a person at church, what do you do when someone's really annoying? And the counseling students that were there said, hey, we've been talking about this. We have this we've learned a lot about, about things you can say to someone who really annoys you, like the right way to handle them. And so they start sharing these tips with all the other students about how you can handle annoying people. Now, here's the problem. As they start sharing the tips, I'm like, wait, that sounds familiar. My wife has said those exact words to me. <laughs> and it dawns on me, she thinks I'm an annoying person. Man, when I got home, I got to tell you, she and I had a conversation. And she just kind of covered her eyes. Yeah, she knew. There's a reason for telling you a story. I want to talk about this idea of counselor today. It's going to play out in our story uh, in a big way. And it also has to do a little bit with this idea that, that sometimes things just don't always go how we want them to, to go. That's certainly the case for the, the passage I want us to start off looking at this morning. We're going to look at a passage from Isaiah and it's going to describe Jesus as a wonderful counselor. But before we get there, I need to, to set the table and the stage for why Isaiah writes this when he does. This passage that we read in Isaiah chapter 9, it's written 700 years before Jesus comes. 700 years before. And it's shared with them. Isaiah shares this with the people at a moment when things are going very, very badly for Israel. The Assyrians keep raiding and just taking more and more of the people of the northern kingdom into, into captivity. And, and they, they move them to different places. Part of their idea was that they would take over an area, capture the inhabitants, and they'd move them far away. And they would divide them up and disperse them up so that they didn't really form one cohesive group that could stand against the empire of Syria. And they were winning. And Israel was losing battle after battle. And they were being destroyed as a nation. Now, there are a lot of reasons why that happened, but things looked pretty dark. And for the northern kingdoms, they would come to be known as the lost tribes of Israel. They would actually disappear, in a sense. It was a bleak moment. But right in the middle of that time, when things were at their most dire and darkest moment, all of a sudden, God decides this is the moment to reveal something about his plan. And 700 years before Jesus is born, at a really dark time, in a terrible moment, he's like, hey, it looks really bad right now, but I have this amazing plan. And I don't know how good you are at keeping a secret. Like God, he decided to tell the secret 700 years early. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big reveal way ahead of time. Listen to what he says through Isaiah. Remember, everything's going wrong. Isaiah is speaking to people and things are falling apart. And all of a sudden, 
Isaiah has this to say. In Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, Isaiah writes, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Now, right away, he and things are all bad, but he's like, gloom's going to go away. In the past, he, God, humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, when Isaiah says that, the people like, Galilee? God's going to honor some little place in the middle of nowhere? Among all the nations? He continues the prophecy of Isaiah. The people walking in darkness. Now that resonated with them. That's how they felt. They were in a dark time. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And indeed, this message he's giving them is a light. He's pointing them towards Jesus, the light of the world. He's giving them this explanation of what's coming. In fact, in verse 3, you have enlarged the nation. You've increased their joy. What was happening to them? Their nation was getting smaller and smaller and smaller with every attack of the Assyrians. But here, Isaiah says, God's going to enlarge the nation. It's going to get bigger. It's going to grow. It's going to swell. Great things are going to happen. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Now, they were familiar with this. When the Assyrians would take over, they would take your stuff. And if they went through your house and they found something they really liked and it was theirs and it wasn't yours anymore, you were probably still present when they're like, hey, this is going to go really nice. Like grandma's necklace is going to look really good on my wife. And you didn't like hearing that. You did not like hearing other people rejoice at the great plunder that they found. But God tells them in this message, one day, listen, you're going to be the one who receives this great gift. You're the one, like, like those soldiers that so, they're so happy when they get these things they've stolen from you. I'm going to bless you and you're going to be happy with the great gift I give you. It'll be amazing. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, every warrior's boot that was used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It'll be fuel for fire, a time where there won't be wars anymore. That time hasn't happened yet, but I look forward to that time. For to us, this is the part you know, a child is born. To us, the son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, God's kingdom will never be utterly destroyed by the Assyrians or anyone else. And he is the one who holds it forever. Those names he gave were really important. 
And in this series, we're going to look at those four names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But today, as I already gave you the heads up, we're going to talk about that phrase, Wonderful Counselor. So it's a great, a great term, and I think that we kind of misunderstand how important that phrase is for us today. I want us to focus on this idea of wonderful counselor, but I want us to think about this. It's, it's more than a term that says, like, someone who's great at mental health. Like, we think of, like, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a counselor who, you know, is like, tell me about your family and about your upbringing. Let's figure out what went wrong. Like, and, and if you're really good at helping people feel better, you'd be a wonderful counselor. But that really doesn't get at all at what this text says and what that phrase means in the Hebrew. Now, it's a weird phrase, and I'm going to say it for you, and you can, you can say it if you want to, but it's a, it's a phrase. That name, wonderful counselor, comes from these Hebrew words, Pele Yohetz. Pele is the first word, which we would translate as wonderful, and the second word, Yohetz. Now, Pele doesn't just mean something that's really good. It actually means something that's incomprehensible. It's better than you could imagine. It's more important than you could imagine. It's an idea of something that is overwhelmingly good. It is beyond our understanding. Pele, beyond understanding. The virgin will conceive and have a child. That's impossible. How is that possible? What's well, beyond our understanding? Pele, something wonderful. It's this idea, a cut above, better than what we would expect, better than what we would imagine. It's a word that Job used. Job, when he was describing God in Job chapter 9, verse 10, he said, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. God does beyond what we can imagine. David says it this way in Psalm 86, 10. He says, you are great, you do, you do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Pele, you do incredible, beyond our imagination. That's what you do. And then there's that second word, yohets. Now that, that word, again, we think of counselors in a very different idea than they thought about them in biblical times. A counselor was someone who advised a king. This was the person who said, you're going to go into battle, and this is the strategy that you should use if you want to have victory. It was someone who was sought after. It's actually a phrase that's used to describe in the Old Testament and the story of Joseph who advises the Pharaoh about how to prepare for the coming famines. He was an advisor, and, and remember that he was made second in command only to the Pharaoh. He was a counselor to Pharaoh. He was a wise counselor, a yohetz. He was a person who was giving this incredibly wise uh, direction for the people. This is the idea that we hear in this phrase, Yohetz, one who gives incredible counsel, incredible direction, so much more than just a therapist or a counselor. Now, Jesus is called this, right? He is called the wonderful counselor, the Pele Yohetz. And as we think about him in that terms, let's go to a passage of scripture today. For the next few minutes, let's look at how Jesus embodied this title, how he lived it out. And this is a passage that these stories will be familiar to you. We won't dwell on them for a long time, but let's go to Luke chapter 8, and let's just get one snippet that kind of brings some of these things together from the life of Jesus. And let's see what it looks like for him to be the Pele Yohetz, the wonderful counselor. 
And I got to tell you, when this story starts, the disciples are probably thinking, not so wise. His direction might not have been the best because he almost cost them their lives. At least that's how they think about it in the beginning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 8. Let's start with a story in verse 22, the calming of the storm, it's called. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, he's giving them direction, he's giving them counsel, he's telling them what to do, and they listen. Let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they were in Galilee, they said, let's go across the lake to the other side. So they got into a boat, they set out, they sailed, and Jesus fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. And don't miss us, the danger was real. Right, you can only put so much water in the boat, and if you're not getting rid of it, pretty soon it's going to go down, right? My friend Dave laughed at that because one day he and I were in a boat that had about 18 inches of water in it, I think, at one point. The fish were swimming upright. We didn't even put them in a bucket. We just put them in the boat, and they just swam around in the boat. That's another story. The boat was about to sink. You're thinking, wonderful counselor, Jesus, you told us to get in this boat. You told us let's cross the lake, and it's about to sink. Like, we thought you were a wonderful counselor. You gave incredibly wise direction to us, and this, this can't be right. And let me just say this. Like, that feels that way sometimes, right? Like, God directs us towards things that don't always feel comfortable or normal. or Like, he puts us into, well, deep water, no pun intended. He puts us in some spaces that are uncomfortable, so like Jesus is like sleeping and they're afraid for their lives. And they really have to be questioning like who is Jesus and why would he do this and are we following the right guy? Wonderful counselor. But listen to what happens in the story. Verse 24 says they went to Jesus, they woke him up saying, "Master, we're going to drown. Like we're in trouble here." Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Then he turned to them and he said, where is your faith? He asked his disciples. And in fear and amazement, amazement, Pele, beyond the understanding, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the waters. And they obey him. Just think of this. If he had not put them in that boat, if he had not directed them to that moment, they would have missed that he was the Lord of creation and that creation itself would have been to his will. Did he put him in the right place? Absolutely. But when we're in the storm, we have the same exact doubts and fears that they had. Bailey, you mentioned that diagnosis of cancer, and it feels like the water is coming in our boat and we're about to sink. You must have this wrong, Jesus. This can't be what's right for me. This can't be the right thing for me to go through. Wait and see. God is good. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He does amazing things. He wants to work in your circumstance just like he worked in theirs. Of course, where Jesus takes them next is remarkable, too. Like, they get out of the storm, and the very next thing tells us they land in the land of Gadara or the Garrisons. It's a place across the lake that's inhabited by a lot of Greek people who worship multiple gods. It has a history that goes back in idol worship. Uh, there have been a lot of horrible things that happened there. It's kind of like 
the wrong side of the track. It's the wrong side of the lakes. They're on the wrong side of things there. It's a place that good Jewish boys didn't go to visit. It wasn't the place you would go. They, for one thing, they raised pigs, which were unclean, and they, didn't, they, they would never associate with that. They were engaged in a lot of pagan revelry. There was a lot of, of things that were considered demonic there. And they knew this was not the kind of place they were supposed to be. But ironically, Jesus just had them leave Galilee, which Galilee, you know, hey, prophecies have been for 700 years. It's going to be a great place. And they've gone across the lake to this really bad place. Wonderful counselor, counselor who gives us incredible direction. Once again, it's on test, right? It's, it's being tested. Their faith is being tested. And let me tell you, the second they land, crazy things start to happen there. Like the battle between good and evil, it is not long in coming to a head. Like as soon as Jesus steps foot, well, listen to what happens. As soon as he steps foot, they sail to the region of the garrisons, which is across the lake from Galilee. Don't miss this juxtaposition of places, one side and the other. Look at the contrast as we read this story between the two places. All right. When Jesus stepped ashore, first step, he was met by a demon-possessed man. Not of you've met any demon-possessed men. I don't know if maybe, I don't that's a crazy thought. As soon as his foot hits the shore, this crazy man comes running at him. That's a little intimidating. I'm sure the disciples are like, maybe we shouldn't get out of the boat here, Jesus. Like I had the picture that he was the first one to get out of the boat, right? And, and, and that happens immediately. It's like, whoa. But this is what they would have expected. That's what this place had a reputation for. Like weird Demonic, bad, pagan stuff happened there. So this is what they expected. But what's going to happen is not what they expect. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not been, excuse me, for a long time he had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but he lived in the tombs. He lived in the graveyard. When this man saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell at Jesus' feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they were drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off. They reported this to the town 
and throughout the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man whom the demons had gone out of sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. None of them had been able to help this guy. They had tried to imprison him like a crazy person and, and hold him in chains and treat him as such. And he would just break through the chains. They had been able to do nothing to help this man. Although I suspect they had done a lot to contribute to the problems he had with the things that they were involved in. But now they see this person who they had no power over in his right mind, clothed at Jesus' feet. And it scares them. Remember, when Jesus hit the ground, he scared the demon, right? Immediately, it screamed out. A greater presence was there. And now he's put this man in his right mind, and the people don't know what to do. And so what they do next is sad. All the people of the region of the garrisons asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So Jesus got into the boat and he left. Now before he left, Luke gives us one little postscript about the man. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with Jesus. <laughs> I mean, think about this. If a person was a great doctor or physician or they had, had helped you with a malady of mental health that you had and got you through it, you'd want to know what the next step is. And you might want additional treatment. Like, doc, don't leave. I want to talk to you some more. And he begs to go with Jesus. And think about this from Jesus' perspective. Like, Jesus could have used this person like a disciple or someone who would be a real... I mean, imagine the story when this guy would tell his story at a revival meeting in a town. People are like, whoa, Jesus did that for you? That's incredible. Like, he would have been an asset to Jesus' ministry. But Jesus, the guy says, take me with you. Like, I don't want to live in this place anymore. This is a really bad place. And I don't want to be a part of this place. Let me go with you, Jesus. But that's not what happens. Listen to what Jesus tells them. Return home. Tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away. He told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. We can look at the other gospel accounts and see this man had a family and Jesus has told him to go back to his family. In other words, Jesus was like, yeah, you would be great helping me, but there's someone else who needs your help more. It's go, time to go back and restore yourself to your family. Oh yeah, and tell your family about Jesus. And tell your neighbors about Jesus. And maybe bring some light into this place of darkness. What did Isaiah say? In the land of darkness, a light will shine. That's not the last part that happens in Luke chapter 8. It says in verse 40, Jesus returned and a crowd welcomed him in Galilee. In, in the land of Gadara and the land of the garrisons, they begged him to leave. When he goes back across, they welcome him. They're so happy that he's back. Jesus is back. And when he comes back, 
they were expecting him. And there was a man there who was expecting him. He was a synagogue leader named Jairus. And he came and he fell at Jesus' feet. Sounds familiar. Same thing the demon-possessed man had done. One man possessed by a demon fell at Jesus' feet because he needed help and Jesus helped him. Now a great leader of the Jewish synagogue comes and he falls at Jesus' feet because he needs his help. And Jesus says he'll help him. Listen to what happens. He pleads with Jesus to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12 years old, was dying. I want to pause for a minute because I know that you and I have something in common, a lot of us. And that is that the holiday season often brings tragedy. And many of us have lost loved ones on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. It's happened twice in my family, once with my father-in-law, once with my 10-year-old niece who died at 1201 just after Christmas Day. I have spent Christmas days at the hospital with many families from our church, and you have prayed with me on Christmas Day when I've had losses. This man whose daughter is dying is experiencing something that hopefully you'll never have to experience, but sadly some of you have. You've lost a child. You know this pain. And so you know the earnestness with which this synagogue leader would be at Jesus' feet. Like, Jesus, I don't know where you've been, but we needed you here. And I desperately need you now at my house. My child needs you. So I think that this was an honest, heartfelt tears pouring out of his eyes as he begs Jesus, please, please, please come to my house and help my little girl. As Jesus was on his way, however, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Sounds a lot like the demon-possessed man. No one could heal him either. No one could help this lady. Everyone had failed. Luckily, she's about to have an encounter with the Pele Yohets, the amazing and wonderful counselor and the one who gives wise direction, Jesus Christ. She came up behind him and she touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. And when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing around you. But Jesus, he ignores Peter. He says, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And hearing those words, the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling, and she fell at Jesus' feet. This is a popular theme. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came to the house from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Now, I imagine that Jairus collapsed. I mean, that would be the, almost the worst news you could ever imagine. But Jesus looks at him, and immediately he, he says to 
to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe. I have the Pele, the amazing power to do things you can't do. And I know the truth. Trust my counsel. Believe in me. She'll be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but she's asleep. They laughed at him. Also a theme, right? People begging him to leave, people not believing what he says. In the presence of Pele Yohetz, in the presence of the most amazing and wonderful director, counselor that you could ever have, not heeding his words, not believing his words. But yet, wait, that's the world we live in right now today. There are many among us who make the same error. Luckily, Jairus didn't make that error. He believed, he trusted. And even though they laughed at him, when Jesus took her by the hand, he said the words, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat, and her parents were astonished. <laughs> Amazing. More than we could ever ask or imagine. Truly wonderful. A counselor like none other. I'm going to think about this for a minute. In all those stories, think of how Jesus was not just helping a person, but how he, in all of them, he helped also a community and he also helped families. Think about the first man, right? Restored back in his right mind. I have no idea what it was like when he went home. Like they had to be afraid, like, what happened to you? And they told him, right? The demon possessed man. That had to be a scary story, but he restored a man to his family. That woman with the issue of blood, she was ceremonially unclean, so under the law, she wasn't even supposed to be associating with her family. But Jesus restored that by making her whole and, and, and taking away the thing that made her unclean. And for Jairus, he brought his child back to life again. He restored his family. I mean, Jesus really is the Pele Yohetz. He really is the amazing and wonderful counselor because he does things that we want counselors to do for us. We want counselors to fix our families. We want counselors to fix us when we're broken. We want to know what the right thing to say or to do is to make a relationship right. Jesus did all of that like no one else could do. Here's the thing that I think is so amazing about Jesus as the wonderful counselor. What he did for them, he still wants to do for us today. And he's still just as present now as he was then. So the question for us, as we come to Jesus, have we embraced him like the woman who touched his garment or the, the synagogue leader who fell at his feet or the once possessed man who now wanted to follow him, have we accepted him 
Or do we find ourselves pushing him away like the garrisons did? Or not believing he can accomplish things in our life like the people did at Jairus' house outside? I don't know where you are on all that. But I hope that you are coming to know Jesus the way that the disciples did. That even when it doesn't make sense, even when it seems like things have gone way off the rails and the boat starts to sink, that he still has a plan for us. Just like Isaiah said, when the whole country seemed to be falling apart, in Isaiah chapter 9, God says, hey, wait a minute. It might look pretty bleak right now, but better things are coming. And friends, if you invite Jesus into your life, I can guarantee you this. Better things are coming. If you've never done that, if you've never accepted him as your Lord and Savior, will you do it today as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation?